Welcome back to the Scared to Death podcast. Today we have Dr. Jeff Dyke. He's a biopsych professor and sensation and perception teacher at JMU. He also does research on sleep in addition to his work teaching. Hi, Jeff. Uh, could you just start by maybe introducing yourself to the audience and maybe expand on your background a bit more? Sure, Alex. So thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, I'm a Montana native who um, found my way here to JMU via the United States Navy. So I have a military background where I did sleep research on submarines and stuff like that. I also worked for the Air Force for a number of years. And, um, but my training, my, my roots are in animal research and measuring evoked potentials from the brains of rats that are sometimes sleep deprived. Great. So I wanted to start with why biopsychology? What was it about this specific field or subset of psychology that was uh, either most attractive to you or I guess circumstantial put you in a place to love it, I guess? Well, biopsychology for people that are the uninitiated is the most interesting area of psychology by far. And people will disagree. Maybe social psychologists wouldn't agree with that. But it really is the most interesting area of psychology because it, it goes to the roots of what causes behavior. It's the biological basis of behavior. And the explanations can be reduced even further than that. We can talk about neurochemistry and things like that, which we, we delve into in biopsych as well. So it's a very reductionistic and I think an appealing way to understand behavior. Hmm. Yeah, it kind of takes all the, the shiny things away from it. It's just like... That's what your body's right. doing. It's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of a concrete operator, to use mm-hmm. a Piaget term. Uh, and, you know, the biopsych is stuff you can sink your teeth into. Yeah, absolutely. So you're doing biopsych, all this. You're doing all sorts of stuff throughout your career and research with sleep and such. But uh, how slash when uh, did you come across uh, terror management theory? Well, my grad student last year, Gabe Gilmore, who's now a PhD student at the University of Kentucky, uh, kept talking about... Um, Lindsay Harville Bowman and, and I was like oh I think I know Lindsay and then and then I, I, I kept seeing her name but I'm not seeing her face and then I kept hearing these wonderful things about um, her laboratory and so it was through that association through a mutual student that I got to know and and, and understand and begin to understand existential psychology which is not a typical branch mm-hmm. of biopsych yeah definitely a uh seemingly unfitting kind of pair uh, and so I guess that that brings me real fittingly to how do you see or can there be an overlap of biopsych and terror management theory where do you see uh, some sort of overlay well there's there's a biological explanation for every psychological construct and be it mortality salience or um, conscious thought processes or the mood that you're in right now there's a biological reason for it and I don't think anybody's looked at the biological pinnings of mortality, mortality salience. And so I thought I would give it a try. And besides this way, I can get, I could experience this lab that everybody talks about is so wonderful. Hmm. Have you done any work or any maybe even just preliminary thought about potential research with delving into the biopsychology of terror management theory and mortality salience and things associated with it? Well, what we're doing now is kind of kind of uh, skipping off of my, my specialty, which is sleep research. And so we're just looking at sleep 
as a variable and see if, if the amount of sleep a person gets, if that has an impact on mortality salience or not. Um, that would just be um, one step in, the, in an interesting direction, but there's other things we could look at. Instead of just total sleep time, we could look at circadian rhythms. There's a number of things that we can do. So this is just our first step. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. So follow-up, I guess, if, uh, say, this first step doesn't seem to prove uh, what you're looking for, what do you think, if you had to have a guess, what part of sleep do you think would, I guess, kind of um, aid in going against or protecting against the effects of mortality, salience, and things of that nature? Well, I mean, people like to um, parse sleep into different stages and ask questions based on th those stages. And of course, and when people think of sleep stages, the first stage they typically think of is REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, of which there's memory consolidation, lots of cognitive processing going on during REM sleep. And there's a lot of cognitive processing going on when you're thinking about dying mm -hmm. and things like that. So the, the fact that there w wouldn't be a relationship is it's hard to fathom. Yeah. I definitely, I, I definitely was thinking REM sleep myself. <laughs> um, so I guess this one's a little more the personal, but uh, are you afraid of death? Um, and if so, when did these feelings kind of surface? And if not, what has helped you get to the perception you have of yourself of not really being afraid of death? That's deep, dude. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think in, everybody, everybody is afraid of things that they don't know or understand. And I think there are people that think they understand death really well. I mean, there's a lot of literature on near-death experiences, and people will say, well, I, I died and I came back. But they didn't die, because if you die, you're dead. Mm -hmm. And so there, even the people that feel very comfortable with this idea of dying, that they, they, if you ask them, they're, they're certain as to what's going to happen next. I think, uh, I think in reality, they're still scared. And so I don't think there's anybody that's not afraid of death because there's everybody's nobody knows for sure what's going to happen. Yeah, I, I would find uh, I kind of agree with that. I, th I think there's some people, uh, especially you know, reading uh, as of recent, getting into terror management theory and existential psychology in general. Uh, you read all these, you know, we're coming up with theories and definitions to explain sensations of death or things of things anything related to it. And I think a lot of people think they're quote unquote comfortable with death and they hide behind the idea of being able to academically kind of define it or break it down as a way of uh, dealing with the mortality salience itself, I guess. Right. I mean, I think people, I mean, the near death, ex the near death experience literature is, is interesting. And we've found that um, there's a biological explanation for that as well. And that's um, the manipulation of this neurotransmitter called glutamate. And a drug that mimics the near-death experience is, is ketamine, which is a veterinary-grade anesthetic. But people that report um, their experiences of using ketamine, it's very much like a near-death experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so next on is, uh, so my interpretation of um, terror management theory, let's say, uh, kind of poses that we everything we do as humans is essentially rooted in our mortality salience, uh, the awareness of our inevitability of death. Uh, so in any individual, this can uh, you know be conscious or unconscious. It can manifest in very small uh, thoughts or day-to-day -day behaviors, or it can influence our larger 
uh, global outlooks or worldviews. And so I'm wondering, what are some things that, um, that you do, uh, whether if you can think of some conscious or unconscious ones, worldviews you may have taken or behaviors you do or things you think uh, to kind of either combat or are a response to uh, our inevitability of death? Well, when you say unconscious, what, what do you mean by that? I guess in a sense of, um, for a quick example, say uh, we're running uh, the lab, the terror management lab is doing, had done a study on health perceptions and, uh, and how that relates to existential psychology. Um, and so, and that was also in, in the context of political affiliation and ideology. And so it was interesting to see how mortali mortality salience is in some way associated with uh, the ideologies we take. But if you ask someone why they pick said ideology, oftentimes they don't really have a, um, a clear-cut answer other than I guess it's kind of what I believe in or it's what I grew up on or things of this nature. So I guess in that sense I say it is unconscious of kind of guides our decisions without us be really realizing it. And, and that's that's interesting. And um, I, I would focus, and I realize TMT is kind of a dual mode, and, and it, it, you can explain things via either conscious or unconscious processes. And so just to be upfront, I'm, I'm a person who doesn't give much credence to this unconscious force that, that like a, there's a homunculus mm -hmm. inside of our head guiding our, our conscious behavior. Uh, I, there's no evidence to support that. And so I would focus more on the salience of conscious thoughts mm -hmm. because those are the things that we can measure. We can't really measure the unconscious. And if we are measuring it, then it's not unconscious. That's true. So have you had any uh, conscious thoughts or deal and then so on dealing with conscious thoughts of uh, death or terror management or anything of the sort. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, most people have experienced, you know, out-of-body experience, you know, floating above your mm -hmm. body, which is something that occurs during um, uh, certain types of REM sleep, you know, um, dream mentation. And these can be kind of interpreted in, in a spiritual um, context. And so, yeah, I mean, I've experienced those things. And, um, yeah, it makes, makes me, you know, wonder about what, what death would be like. And um, because sometimes these out-of-body experiences are part of, of what the literature would indicate is, is the near-death experience. So I think a lot of people, when they have these sensations that are quite common, they'll interpret them based on their ideology, like what you were saying. And so those are, those are all conscious um, interpretations, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, talking about the, the near-death uh, experiences and stuff, uh, I personally have been taking notice of the rise in the field of psychology and I guess maybe the culture in general of our society, uh, what some seem to be calling a, a psychedelic renaissance. And there's more and more labs popping up around the country uh, and around the world testing the efficacy of different psychedelic uh, psychotherapy combinations, uh, you know, some for PTSD treatment, depression, smoking cessation. Uh, various others. Interestingly, uh, the one that's m I think that would be the most applicable to terror management is uh, the work that they're studying uh, these psychedelic psychotherapies uh, with 
can terminally ill patients, uh, mostly cancer patients. But the it seems to me their findings are pretty good. That it, they're there's very good efficacy in reducing death anxiety in these terminally ill patients. And I'm wondering if maybe you could comment on the neurochemical and the biochemical ways or potential ways that these might have an effect on reducing fear anxiety at such a, a rapid and effective rate, seemingly. Yeah, I mean, one of uh, the interests in our lab is, is pharmacology and we've uh, experimented with, and usually with rats, but we were doing human studies as well on, on the efficacy of certain drugs, legal or, or, or legal, legal or illegal, and, and how that impacts cognitive performance and stuff like that. Um, but the, um, the, the, the studies that you're talking about, the resurgence of, um, what did you call it? Uh, the psychedelic renaissance. Psychedelic renaissance. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, that's, there, you know, the use of LSD and uh, drugs like that um, on on PTSD and the Department of Defense, of which I used to belong, is uh, funds quite a bit of that research to to test these Schedule One drugs and Schedule One drugs like LSD, as you know, um, has no purported medical benefits. But um, but uh, but and they're probably wrong. There probably is something medically. Um, of value of in, in LSD and some of these early experiments, as you point out, um, are they're they're having really good um, results from small amounts of LSD. But it's not just psychedelics. It's it's also I mentioned the drug ketamine, which is used for like horses or cats or dogs, and so they've been looking at ketamine as also um, an effective ameliorator of anxiety, not just death anxiety, but just uh, you know anxiety in general that can generalize to almost everything. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, the idea of, of making it easier for researchers to study Schedule One drugs like LSD, like marijuana, is, is important to help move our biomedical sciences forward. Yeah, I very much agree. Uh, I'm curious, um, and now you, you don't have to give me the number, but. I, I don't know when you started work uh, or studying and doing stuff like that. Were um, were you around and starting your work within psychology uh, by the time uh, LSD uh, and things of the like had become put into the Schedule One category and made illegal to study? Um, well, I, I was when I first started doing research, ketamine was an unscheduled drug completely, and so it was easy to have access to it, and then it became scheduled, and then it was harder to access. Um, but marijuana and LSD has been on Schedule One since, um, since, I, since I burst onto the scene um, unceremoniously in the early 90s. And mm -hmm. so, um, so these things have changed for the better, and, and the government has relaxed a little bit um, some of the requirements to obtain a Schedule One license that enables you to do that kind of research. Now, having said that, I've looked into getting a Schedule One license for my lab, and it was so complicated that I decided not to pursue it. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's still easier. I mean, you you can get a Schedule One license uh, after about a one year period ap through the application, and and your your lab has to be inspected, and the DEA gets involved and stuff like that. It's gotten easier, but it's still we're still a long ways away from of being able to really study the efficacy of these Schedule One drugs like LST and marijuana. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, really far away from truly opening it up, opening up the sample sizes and so That's that right. more and more people can and, do it. And being able to use some of the, for, for example, for marijuana, being able to use some of the marijuana that, that people in Colorado or Washington, D.C. are obtaining legally. Because if you do Schedule One drug research, you have to buy it from the federal government. Mm -hmm. And the quality of that drug isn't as good as what you're getting, like, in the state of Colorado. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I was curious, so uh, it seemed you made a distinction of ketamine away from psychedelics. It was uh, my poor understanding, I guess, that it was it produced a psychedelic-like state. So I guess I assume what kind of drug, where does it fall in the families of? I would consider ketamine in the category of dissociative drugs, okay. um, not a psychedelic, but but the the experience would be similar, the, you know, some hallucinations mm -hmm. and things like that. But it's modulated through a different receptor um, mechanism. LSD is is a five uh, HT two A receptor. It's a serotonin receptor, whereas ketamine works through glutamate. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So. It, I'm kind of, it's my, my understanding, it seems that it's like, they're similar, but they, they both produce a similar kind of derealization or maybe depersonalization, dissociation from reality, that kind of effect. However, the ketamine acts through a glutamate and it, the LSD uh, works yeah. through serotonin. That's okay. right. That's right. Oh, okay. Okay. So you pick that up very fast. Yeah. Well, I, I had a, I felt like I had a general understanding, but then, you know, you said it, and I was like, okay, yeah, no, that is, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, and I guess, uh, so my last question here um, is, uh, is a little abstract, so there is no real answer, but what is your uh, definition of the meaning of life, and has anything related to death in your life shaped your meaning of life? Well, the meaning of life, that's, a, that's the big question. Yeah, and it, it goes back to, uh, you know, Socrates would, he mulled that one around and he said, well, happiness, the pursuit of happiness is the meaning of life. And others have agreed and some have disagreed. I mean, so the obvious answer is that you have to find your own meaning in life and, and your past experiences and your biological predilections are going to determine what's meaningful for you. And as far as um, you want me to, you wanted me to tie that into like fear of death and things like Not that. Not necessarily. I just had, I didn't know if anything uh, particularly pertaining to a, a fearful or death related experience maybe changed how you looked at life from one part of your life and then you have that experience and you're like, oh, it's entirely different. Right. And, and I would like to think that maybe my time on board submarines when I was when we were diving really deep and the and the submarine would make these creaking sounds mm -hmm. and there there is every submarine has and it's it's has its um crush point and so when you hear it creaking you are, you start thinking about you know what what would happen if the walls came crashing in i mean it would be death for sure and so i did have those thoughts when i was on board submarines but it, i don't think it at least yet it hasn't changed my perspective Mm. On, on the thoughts of death because I know I'll never know until it actually happens. So I love what you said about obviously the meaning of life being arbitrary to the individual. Everyone has to find their own meaning. Um, do you have a particular meaning? What has given you meaning? Uh, is it 
teaching? Is it learning? Is it? Uh, what it, could it it's be? teaching. It's learning. It's um, you know seeing uh, students going on and, and being successful, and 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 then and then kind of coming back full circle. And you know I'll get these cards occasionally, and that's that's just some of the most wonderful things that I could ever receive as a thank you card for somebody who's now in doing research at the University of Kentucky, like in Gabe, or I have um, former students at the University of Texas, and a former student that's at Brown, and they will thank me, and, and I appreciate that. But there's always a part of me when I'm thanked by a student who's, who I, that I've helped them get into, say, a PhD program or med school or something. And I'm always wondering, you know, if I, if I wasn't here, it would have been somebody else would have guided you, mm. you know. And so, and that's, that can tailspin into thought of life being meaningless. And so that's maybe a little personal insight into some of how some of my thoughts work. Definitely. Because I, I mean, everybody is expendable. And, and these, these students here at JMU and at other places that I've taught, they're very talented. And I think they would find success um, even if I w wasn't around. I mean, it, that's not an it's a wonderful life answer, but I think it's a more realistic one. Yeah, I agree. The, the mind is, is putty, and they can, whoever can just mold it. Right. Yeah. Right. All right, well, that's all I have. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us and, and being such a great guest. I had, a, I had a pleasant conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Alex. This was fun. Yeah, Let's do it again. Absolutely. <laughs>